Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the photographer Max Pinkers, who grew up in Indonesia, India, Australia, and Singapore, and is currently based in Brussels. His work is focused on the dynamics of documentary photography, how it's made, and how it's received. Pinkers understands documentary as a speculative process, seeing truth and reality as plural and often malleable notions. His first photo book recorded the transgender or ladyboy culture of Thailand in scenes that are often highly staged, using the contested nature of his subject's identities to reflect how he sees the medium of photography itself as something unstable, undefinitive, and open-ended. I came across Max's work by chance in a bookshop the other month and was totally enthralled by his pictures. All of them have this slightly staged and artificial quality, reminiscent of a film set, Somehow, whenever I see pictures like this, pictures that start to expose their own artifice or construction, I think of architecture, which to me is its own kind of reflexive documentary practice, albeit one that speculates about how future scenes might unfold within the elaborate sets it constructs. In our conversation, we touch on these affinities between architecture and documentary and cover a lot of other topics as well, including a major project Max undertook in 2016 with his wife Victoria Gonzalez Figueres in the form of a road trip through America to explore how personal imagination conflicts with consensus beliefs in a way that speaks directly to this so-called era of post-truth we find ourselves in. I spoke with Max over Zoom in May of 2022. He was in Brussels and I was in London. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. So maybe the best place to start is by talking about the school of speculative documentary. What exactly is that? <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention it because you say you talk about architecture in this uh, projection of some kind of future outcome, and it does have something speculative about it in that sense where you try to speculate how it's going to function in a kind of real world environment or how it's going to look uh, once it becomes real. But so the, specul- the school of speculative documentary is um, basically, it started out as a research group. So I, I did a PhD in the arts uh, for a six year program that I graduated last year. And um, at the Academy in Ghent, the School of Arts, Kask in Ghent. Um, and we realized that we were, that there were a number of researchers at the school um, that were all thinking about documentary making, but from different disciplines. What we realized through our conversations and, and through sharing um, is that 
what uh, sets documentary apart from from other disciplines or ways of um, looking at the world is that you always kind of have to question yourself before you can um, engage with something outside of yourself. So it kind of requires a self-reflexive um, attitude towards what you're dealing with. So instead of trying to take a position of authority or a position of truth, like many classic or more traditional documentaries do, right? They, they, they bring information from a position of, I know everything and I'm going to tell you how it is. Um, that documentary is much more about um, pointing out that there are that there are lots of holes in, in, in the stories we tell, that we cannot uh, know everything, that we have to kind of embrace a, uh, a certain position of, of, of uncertainty, of gaps, uh, of limitations, of whatever tools we're using to to talk about the world. Um, and that's where this idea of, of, of the speculative comes in, where we can we can only speculate about about the world um, and we cannot claim that we that we can bring across all knowledge of it. Um, mm. I mean, the way this is resonating with me has to do with the complicity that um, designers have in producing reality to some extent, mm -hmm. that we're kind of, in a way, as we generate everyday environments, whether it's through an image or through a space, you start to dictate the terms through which other people engage with that space or that image. Yeah. And it's always been exciting to me, um, especially in the discourse of architecture in the UK, there's this long-standing obsession with this term, the everyday. Okay. <laughs> and it's almost a kind of fetishized aspect of um, maybe a certain corner of architectural discourse where there's this intense fondness for the mundane mm -hmm. and um, an intense pleasure in being able to take a hand or play, play a part in producing that kind of background to daily life. And to me, there's something very similar to um, the way, there's a kind of effect very similar to the way in which a director might stage a scene. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's this act of um, cinematography almost at play. And this is so true when scenes are set up, when images are constructed mm -hmm. to, to anticipate a future environment. And it's the same process of cinematography that comes through so clearly in a lot of the pictures that you make, mm -hmm. where very often the scenarios are staged yeah. um, with amateur actors or participants. The lighting is very harsh. You use an intense flash. Mm -hmm. The focus is very sharp. And you use a medium format camera on... Um, on a stand, so it's 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 kind of cumbersome, and you need to make sure that you're in, as a photographer in control of the scene you're creating mm -hmm. to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this this kind of aesthetic of cinematography um, that, for me, is one of these elements that starts to draw attentions, draw our attention to those gaps between what is real and what is being produced speculatively. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I wanted to talk about, maybe now is the right time, is this tradition of cinematography in 
photography. Okay. Because when I saw your work for the first time uh, in this book, as I mentioned before we started recording, um, in a bookshop in Brussels, I was immediately reminded of pictures by people like Jeff Wall, mm -hmm. Rodney Graham, Stan Douglas, or filmmakers like Gus Van Sant, mm -hmm. um, artists like Thomas Demand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And nice. I'm sure a lot of these names will resonate with listeners as well, and probably have a special place in the heart of many architects in particular. But for me, yeah, with architecture, there's always been this real, I think, real allure and excitement around the um, the staging of daily life and the fact that, mm -hmm. in effect, that's essentially all we do. We're making these elaborate sets uh, for life mm -hmm. to play out within. Um, and I think, yeah, there, there's a lot of affinities between that conception of architecture and a certain kind of documentary mode that your work definitely fits within. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and maybe it would be interesting to instead, so indeed, um, people like Jeff Wall and, and Thomas Demont, and there have been a number of artists in the past uh, that have approached photography in a way that I think the word is not recreating reality or looking at the construction of how reality may be constructed. I think a more accurate term is, is, um, is a form of realism. So where we don't talk about reality because that's so far away from any kind of, um, to, to grasp it in a representation, that we need to think about it as a form of realism where uh, when we try to talk about something in reality, we're, we're aestheticizing it, we're creating an image um, based on that. And the, and the way that image relates to how one sees reality is a form of realism, I think. And the ideas of how our ideas of realism are, of course, things that develop over time and, and we, we have different kind of frames of realism uh, that we can that we can say that stand in for how we how we uh, how we look at reality, right? So, um, like a form of realism in the Middle Ages might have been these you know big paintings and things like that, and people would then relate to them as representing something truthful or real. Uh, I think one of the main forms of realism in the twentieth century was photojournalism. If we're talking about photography, right? Uh, the kind of coverage of live events and, and, and wars and all of these things that was very much a form of realism that people accepted was a kind of truthful representation of things that are going on. But I think more in the kind of, as we approach postmodernism and kind of uh, real critical thinking of about images and how images are indeed very constructed and how, you know, the, the distance between the image and reality itself uh, m more complex forms of realism arise where it is indeed constantly a kind of deconstruction of the image and, and our, our, our feelings of how truthful or real those images might be. So Thomas Demont, for example, is quite simply from a distance or from a first gaze at an image, you take it for a, a real place, right? You see an office or something. 
But then you go up close and you start to realize that it's actually all made out of paper or there's something very, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's like a maquette or something that you walk into and then you, all of a sudden you, you, you realize that you're looking at something extremely constructed and precise and, and, and made in such a way that it's exactly to give you this, this first impression that is then a, a kind of broken down and deconstructed. And I think, um, Jeff Wall does something similar as well. He uses what he calls near documentary. So, mm -hmm. so people would, I mean, people, I, I guess in the, the popular sense, the spectator or something would assume by looking at the aesthetics of, of how those pictures look, that they are traditional documentary snapshots, right? So they must be truthful according to our 20th century frame of realism. Um, but then when you inspect closer and you start to think, well, you know, these are very large prints and the quality is too good for it to be a snapshot and all of these little signs, uh, the closer you look and actually the more you start to reflect yourself as a spectator, the more you start to kind of have some kind of inner reflection on what you're seeing, the more you realize again that this is not what, um, what you expect it to be. And it questions, I think that's the main point of this kind of work is that the spectator starts to question the relationship between them, the image and, and reality that it's supposed to represent. So on a kind of very, yeah, maybe abstract or philosophical level, that's also where my work operates. And I think a lot of contemporary documentary uh, work, be it photography or film or, or theater, is kind of operating on that level where you're asking the viewer to question what they see, while at the same time being conscious that it is a relationship to reality that is still truthful. It's not because it's constructed or made out of paper or or staged or or or, or directed with actors that it's not um, a truthful representation or engagement with reality, and that's for me a very interesting space and maybe a shift in how we, we, we a shift in our frame of realism let's say or how we kind of understand the reality around us i want to talk more now about some specific photo books that you've made but start to maybe help us further unpack these ideas through examples mm -hmm. and the first is i think the first book that you published self-published uh, which is called lotus yeah um, and it's a series <clears throat> that you and your friend Quentin Debrun mm -hmm. undertook to document the world of transgender sex workers in Thailand. Not only sex workers. Okay, so transgender people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And there's a term for these people, ladyboys, I guess is the colloquial term. Yeah, ladyboys or, or katui, they, that's like the Thai mm. term for it. Uh, for for that, um, but yeah, we can use lady boys, transgender. I mean, in today's age, uh, with the sensitivity about the terminology, I'm mm -hmm. myself a little bit unsure what the right term is to use. People that were that were that were born a man that have that have become a woman. Let's say. Um, so th there's a series of of pictures that you and Debrun made documenting um, these people in various settings, whether it's. Mm -hmm. Um, in the domestic realm, um, there's some who are um, in a more medical environment, presumably after an, uh, an operation has taken place. Yeah. And there are these 
beautiful tableaus that deploy all the tactics that we've described around heightening the viewer's awareness of the fact that these images are in a way made up or constructed or um, self-determined mm -hmm. to the degree that the subject's own identity is. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So we have, we have the conventions of photography um, being manipulated, but then we also have the subject matter, which is all about uh, a contested reality, yeah. which in this case is the gender of, of the subjects you're, you're documenting. Yeah. So why, why begin this way? Why start with the world of, of ladyboys uh, in Thailand? How is that the beginning for you? So I made this work when I was a bachelor student at the academy. It was my fir very first um, attempt at, at making documentary work. And um, Quentin and I, we were classmates back then. So we were always kind of working together, experimenting together. We kind of by chance ended up in, in, um, in Thailand together. Um, we started making photographs. We started experimenting with this use of light to create kind of artificial looking uh, scenes. And uh, we realized that the lady boy or the, the katsui was, was a very, um, let's say, socially accepted. Um, it, in Thailand, it's, some, it's very different to here in the West where indeed there, it's a kind of, um, yeah, there's still lots of issues with acceptance around it. Whereas in Thailand, you can, you can find or see ladyboys in all levels of society. It's not just uh, the sex workers, like we often uh, project uh, from our Western point of view, and which is also a little bit the cliche of like Thai ladyboys being sex workers. Mm. But that's something we wanted to um, also show in the work that you have a um, like friend, but they all have these weird English names, that's because their Thai names are often too long and complicated, so they have nicknames. Friend who's, uh, who's just graduated from high school or, um, you know, uh, Jin who's in the park, who's just gotten engaged with, with, um, with her future husband. Uh, so all of these scenes that go away from these stereotypes of, of the sex work industry. But of course, we've also included that. Uh, and indeed, like you said, we realized that if we wanted to make a documentary that questions these um, formats and these aesthetics of uh, documentary photography uh, and this kind of constructedness and this kind of theatricality, that uh, ladyboys would be the perfect subject to work around because they also have this uh, transformation. They create this image. They're very proud. They're very... Uh, eccentric most of the time, you know, they like to play along with the creation of these pictures. And at the same time, there's also this, this idea that what you're looking at is something, you know, something that's changed, something that's like a kind of, if you want to go in a cheesy way, like a lotus flower kind of came out of, uh, came out of the ground and blossomed or something. So, um, that subject and that kind of theme was a perfect reflection on how we saw photography or wanted to deal with photography. So that's always very important in my work that the subject matter is a kind of mirror for the medium as well. What Quinton and I tried to do always in this project, so our main, our main intent was to make photographs that felt as if they were staged, as if they were 
directed or artificial or uh, that something wasn't, you know, real in a sense, or that, it, that the viewer would kind of question again, like I mentioned before, about what they're seeing and how, how truthful it is. By creating a photographic environment that felt one like a stage, maybe like a kind of theater setting, which we did through lighting, through using flash lighting, but also through these architectural structures that come back. But often also people are standing on something elevated, like be it a street curb or the back of a truck or on a bed or so there's always a kind of stage element, literally. Um, but then within this photographic environment, which is very precise and very, you know, um, chosen for its particular reasons and so on, we would uh, always want something spontaneous to occur. So the, the actions in the pictures are almost never directed or uh, you know, set up by us. So we would would have people in one of these spaces, it would be lit, it would be framed, and then we would just hmm. be there until something happened. So it's this, this, this combination between this very, uh, yeah, um, constructed photographic space and this very spontaneous um, thing that happens by the people in the pictures. And it's that tension between those two uh, that we were always trying to uh, to get. It's interesting, this topic of gender, which is so present in cultural discussions today or in the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. Equally, this whole world of conspiracy and truth, yeah. <laughs> as it applies to current events, it's moved to the center, I think, of um, the way we engage with media. There's always some suspicion, I think, of the provenance of information and the veracity of it, mm -hmm. and also a kind of wariness of how a message can be augmented or altered or distorted by the messenger. Mm -hmm. And so maybe moving on to this more recent book pro project, Margins of Excess, mm -hmm. we, could, we could talk more about those ideas. Margins of Excess, it's essentially a road trip that you and your partner, Victoria Gonzalez Figueres, took across the US. Mm -hmm. This was in, was it 2016? Yeah, 2016, yeah. During the uh, Trump-Hillary election mm -hmm. period. Yeah. So this really pivotal moment in American mm -hmm. politics and culture. And you're charting a course through what it feels like the psyche of American life. <laughs> And the first, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it really does feel that way, and uh, yeah. and tragically so. Um, in a lot of cases, the first environment we're in, I think, at least in the documentary of the making of the project, mm. um, there's also this film documentary that that complements the the photo book. Mm. So in that documentary, if we could call it that, the first stop you make is a gun shop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I watched it almost immediately after the Uvalde shooting, oh, um, yeah. the mass shooting in a, a school in Texas. And just two weeks before that, of course, um, a mass shooting in Buffalo. And I think the way that this photo project of yours is engaging with the history of America's relationships to guns and to violence, 
uh, but also to conspiracy and political power. You also visit the site of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you take pictures of teenagers posing on the X that's marked on the street. You're also at the University of Texas documenting the plaza where the first mass shooting in a school took place. Um, so there's this thread of gun culture throughout and also this kind of aura of speculation or kind of hesitancy around what the dominant narrative might be of these events. Mm. What is it like for you to look at the state of affairs in America now, having gone through this road trip? Mm. That's, that's, yeah, that's uh, difficult. And there's a lot there to, to talk about. Uh, but I find interesting that you, the things that you mentioned um, around the gun culture and the, the shootings and stuff, um, one spread in the book that I think um, makes my position or my thoughts about these things a bit more clear, because a lot of it is suggested, a lot of, there's nothing is really made explicit, again, because I don't quite know um, what position to take there, if at all, I would take like an extreme point of view there. Uh, but there's a spread in the book on which you can see on the right side, you can see the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, I think it is, somewhere in mm -hmm. Florida, mm -hmm. uh, where there was a, a very, um, a very big uh, mass shooting. I think it was, it's a gay club. Uh, and something like 40, 46 people or so were killed um, in that nightclub. And we were there on the, on the one year uh, anniversary of that tragic event. Um, and then on the left side of, of that spread, there is a, a picture of the brand new monument that they had erected on Ground Zero, which had only just been put up when we were there of a, a U.S. soldier on horseback um, celebrating the, the military unit that first went into Afghanistan on horseback after the September 11 attacks, which mm. is a very kind of, I mean, it's a cowboy, basically, yeah? the guy on the horse. Um, <clears throat> so you have these two very politically loaded um, places that say a lot about these kind of um, global, very, um, yeah, uh, let's say impactful events that are happening. But they're represented through these, these, uh, these places where the viewer, again, a very large part of this book, and something I realized that was quite interesting later on, is that you can really interpret the work in both ways, depending on your own political um, biases. So if you are, if you have right-wing sentiments, for example, you can find a lot of confirmation in that book that support your thoughts, but equally so from a kind of leftist uh, perspective. And that's something that I only realized later. And it's because of the ambiguity of the way that it's brought. And also, of course, the ambiguity of the stories that are, uh, that are told in the book of these. So there are six different characters uh, five of which that we met and interviewed and spoke to. One, the, Hermann Rosenblatt was the only person that had already passed. So he's the, 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 actually the first story in the book, even though I don't see it as a linear narrative per se, but he's the first to appear. 
So he's the only one that had passed away when we learned about his story, but I found it such a beautiful and fitting story that I really wanted to feature it in the work. Mm-hmm. Um, who, uh, as, a, as a child, was um, in a concentration camp. And uh, again, to make a long story short, um, every day a little girl would come by the fence of the camp and throw him an apple over the fence. They never spoke. They just kind of made eye contact and he, he would receive this apple. And that's kind of how he survived the, the hunger of the camp and so on. Um, then after the camps were liberated, he moved to New York and a friend of his set him up on a blind date. And that girl ended up being the little girl that threw him an apple every day over the fence, which was an amazing uh, story of course they got married two weeks later they they came on oprah winfrey show twice they given book deals and movie deals and so on but then very quickly after all that attention um turned out that of course historians would kind of point out certain things that were not possible in the narrative and so on and he eventually admitted that it was made up there's this beautiful quote from him yeah i think it was an interview he gave on good morning america where he said to the interviewer that when confronted with his fabrication of these events, that it wasn't a lie, it was my imagination. And in my imagination, I believed it. In my imagination, it was true. And this is a line of his Mm -hmm. that I think you use, you can foreground quite prominently. Yeah, yeah. And that became a very important um, kind of opener for the work because it says so much about how you know, not only these people, but all of us, I think, um, see the world in a sense. And then uh, in a more meta level, of course, the way photography relates to the world as well, um, which very much deals with that layer of um, imagining things that are true for you. Hey, it's Matthew here, just stepping in for a minute. Max and I went on for a little too long about the other people profiled in Max's book, But I think it's still important to explain who they are, to give you a sense of the kind of uncertain or ambiguous identities that Max's project revolves around. So in addition to Herman Rosenblatt, the Holocaust survivor who fictionalized the account of how he met his wife, we also meet the private detective J.J. Arms, who appears to be this superhero detective. He's this larger-than-life character, a gun-wielding double amputee with two hooks for arms and an unprovable record of crimes he's solved. We also meet Darius McCollum, a black man from New York with Asperger's syndrome, who drew media attention by repeatedly assuming the identity of a transit worker in order to operate subway trains. We also meet the inventor Richard Heaney, who possibly staged an elaborate television hoax. Just Google Balloon Boy to find out more. And then there's this woman, Rachel Dolezal, who is ethnically white but has assumed a black identity. And finally, we hear the story of Ali Al-Khazi, a detainee at the Abu Ghraib prison who suffered torture at the hands of his American captors, but falsely claimed to be the hooded man in the iconic photo from that place. Okay, so with all these people in mind, I'll bring you back to Max and what feels like a really important insight he shares about what exactly these people all have in common. Yeah. And so I think that's something that all of these people that we've, spoken to have in common that they've kind of tried to materialize or give shape to their desires, to their ways of dealing with the world that are incompatible with society. 
and that then there there is then a conflict or friction with a kind of personal truth or a personal world or a personal desire that is materialized but it does not fit with the, the kind of shared truths that we as a society can accept mm. i want to follow up on that insight by probing more into your own desires as the author of these projects mm. you are equally a protagonist in this project um, if not alongside these kinds of individuals yeah. that we've been discussing um, then um, in some kind of relationship with them by producing this work and in fact you interviewed all of them except for Rosenblatt who as you say had passed away mm -hmm. um, so maybe there's no kind of point-blank question that would I think be able to kind of breach <laughs> the interest I have in what your desires are as a photographer. Uh, but maybe we could start by, first of all, understanding um, your own background, your biography in a way, where it is that you actually grew up and kind of follow that hmm. path back to this question of um, your photographic agenda. So I was born in Brussels to, to, to Belgian parents. Um, and uh, at a very young age, my, my parents broke up and then my mother just decided to move with me to Indonesia, uh, where I lived uh, for, for about three years, uh, to school there and everything. Um, kind of hippie environment, if you will, you know, just very, um, with no real intent or no, uh, no real job that my mother had there either. It was all very spontaneous and, and just to kind of get away from things here i guess um we then moved to australia where i lived for about two years um a place called byron bay um and then when i when i was 12 years old it was time for me to go to to high school or to have a kind of stable education you could say because i was kind of moving around a lot um so that's when i decided or my parents decided to that i would live with my father in singapore where he still lives today uh, my father's a photographer as well. Um, and that's where I spent my teenage years. So I spent my, um, until I was 18, so six to seven years in, in Singapore. Um, yeah, with my mother, I traveled around a lot too. I mean, spent some time in India as well. She was always kind of moving around Asia, but I kind of came more stable in Singapore, uh, did international school for six years and then um, so a kind of expat environment I was growing up in. Uh, and then when I was 18, I had to go, well, I had to be looking to do higher education. And the most logical thing was to come back to Belgium because it's free, luckily for us here. Uh, so that's when I decided to, to start uh, studying photography at, at the School of Arts in Ghent, where, where I did a bachelor's and a master's degree and, uh, and then a PhD also. So since then, I've actually been living back in Belgium, which is now almost just about half of my life, 33 now. Mm. So I'd like to, I mean, until I was 18, more or less, I was growing up in Asia, various different places. And, and now is kind of the moment where it's becoming that I've lived uh, longer in Belgium again than I, than I was in Asia. So it's maybe time for me also to start thinking about moving again. Um, <laughs> we'll and why, why, why do you think that is? What is wrong with stasis or familiarity? 
there's nothing wrong with that per se, but it's something that I, um, yeah, I think that I need or that I yearn for to, to, um, to not stay in, 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 a, in a kind of a place where um, too much of the same rhythm happens all of the time or something. And I, and I think that's why I made the work that I did because it also allowed me to step out of my, you know, whatever we call where we spend our daily routines um, and to have different to have different experiences and different perspectives and different encounters um, outside of this rather small, uh, you know, uh, space that we call home. Um, and that, of course, comes from, from my upbringing as well. It's always been something that I've, that's been part of my life. So that's something that I, I don't know, maybe it's, it, it has to do, they call it, there's a, even a term for it. I think it's called a third culture kid. Mm. where you don't identify, you can't clearly identify with a single place or a single culture because either your parents are from different places or you've grown up in different places uh, or, you know, there's a kind of mix where your identity is being, um, is not so straightforward or so black and white as, as, as it traditionally has been maybe. Mm. Uh, and I still don't fully, I guess, identify as being Belgian even, maybe it's more... Yeah, Brussels, because Belgium itself has an identity problem. Um, but yeah, it's... Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like such a contemporary condition mm-hmm. to, to embody, which is a facet of an increasingly globalized world where yeah, totally. cultures very fluidly interact and merge and redefine themselves. I mean, I grew up in Vancouver in Canada. My partner grew up in Shenzhen in China. Oh, yeah. And my children are living in London. And I think they are probably this kind of third culture um, as well. And this is increasingly the case for all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, maybe that's a part of the intrigue that your pictures hold, that they are in a way um, embodying this this new kind of ambiguity. Mm. Um, and there's a, there's a certain facility or ease you have with handling that mm-hmm. difficulty <laughs> or handling that state of not knowing. Mm. That's nice to hear. Yeah, that's, uh... yeah. I mean, there's a state of unease, I think, at mm-hmm. the center of each picture. But there's also, maybe through the lack of judgment, um, a, a kind of knowingness or a, at least a, a knowledge of what can't be known about a given situation mm-hmm. or a given individual's experience. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the woman who is asserting her race is different than what she was born as or the boy who is now a girl or the prisoner yeah. whose experience um, maps onto an image that is not in fact his own. Mm-hmm. I think in all of these cases there's an intense discomfort around the experience that's being portrayed and yet some kind of, in a way, acceptance mm-hmm. of these conditions mm-hmm. and an ability to somehow live with them mm-hmm. in a way that feels uh, increasingly like a state of mind we are as a society going to have to adapt. 
Yeah, I think it's a really beautiful um, remark that you make, and it's very close to. I was wondering if you had read the text that uh, Hans Test, this art critic, that he just wrote a text uh, for in uh, a book that's been published. Um, it's the first book that is like a 10 year overview of my work. And uh, he wrote a very nice text uh, in which he pretty much says the same thing. Really? Yeah. I hadn't read that. That's really funny that. I mean, it's just a testament, yes. I think, to how, in a way, how transparent um, the attitude of the images is. Yeah, which is really great to hear because, and I think one of the things that I that makes it so important for me, at least now, is that not only because of um, because of my upbringing, because of my experiences, because of my way of of of, um, of making work, is that especially in 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 today's age where there is a kind of um, over necessity to label and, and pigeonhole and compartmentalize identity, but also people, but also um, races, but everything has, is becoming uh, very, very specific in terms of how it's, how it's defined. Um, that that's something that I, that, that I move, that, that, that my work doesn't do. Um, and, and that I think is important, even though, of course, I have a lot of respect for, um, for the issues that are going on today. I also think that there is, that there is another side to it, that there is, um, a need for not labeling, a need for not identifying or a need for not, uh, yeah, being put into a limitation basically. Um, Mm. so, and, and that's very, I think very important, um. Also, again, on, on, on the level of the medium itself, on the level of thinking about art and so on, about categories, about, um, yeah, so many things and on a kind of abstract level that, that hook into that. Um, I mean, there's a, speaking of labels and titles, for a few years, it seemed like you were going to be a magnum photographer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure most listeners will know what that means, but for those mm-hmm. who don't, um, what is Magnum exactly? Mm. Uh, Magnum is a, uh, I would say, a, a photo agency um, which gained prestige in the 20th century um, uh, by by people like Robert Capa and uh, you know um, Cartier Bresson and all the famous photojournalists and street photographers that we that we know today. Um, and it's basically become one of the most prestigious um, agencies for reportage and photojournalism. Um, but um, to me, it's, it's still, um, or maybe, maybe not just to me, but in general, you could say that it's still quite traditional in terms of its approach to, to photography. And if we are looking for documentary photography that goes deeper, that, that is more self-reflexive, that is more questioning. Uh, I wouldn't say that that's a, um, a space where it can be, uh, where it can be found. So it's still, it's still, it's, and the reason why my, my work to put it briefly doesn't fit in that context is because it's, it's too much, I think, questioning the boundaries of, of what documentary photography can be or, the, you know, the relationships photography have to truth. And I think it's something that is changing now 
um, or maybe in the last couple of years where on a general sense, I think documentary photography is changing or, or raising a lot of questions. Um, but um, yeah, it was, it was for many different reasons, not something where I could um, see myself as, as, as fully dedicating. <laughs> So it's it's interesting. You were nominated in 2017. Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure how the process Fif works, but 15, it, 15. 2015, yeah. and then you remained a nominee for a certain number of years. And then what happened? Was there a decision amongst the organization that in fact your work didn't fit, or did you step back? Well, yeah. So so basically, uh, I was I was invited to part to so to come into the agency, and the the, the way the system works is. You first your two years you're a nominee, which means that you have two years um, to 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 produce work, and then a round of voting happens. So you need to get the majority vote of all the photographers that have made it to their membership status, which is for life. Um, you have to go through this voting round. And so after two years, they vote, and then there's another two years, and then they vote again, and only then do you become a member, a permanent member of the agency. So I didn't make it past the uh, first round. Um, and, and also, again, I mean, <clears throat> as you can imagine, when there is voting involved, it also kind of uh, entails that there is a lot more to it than, than just the work that you're producing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, though, because it starts to indicate how at least documentary photographers receive your work. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like there's still a hesitation or discomfort in embracing it. I mean, do you encounter that yourself personally? Do you feel kind of um, tension or exclusion? Or is it in fact maybe more suiting to your, your own personality or identity to not be a part of this um, consensus group? Well, yeah, so for sure, I mean, the latter, it, for me, it is always been um, difficult to uh, to fully um, identify with one particular space, be it an institution or a, a genre or a, an agency or whatever. Um, but then Secondly, I think uh, part of what makes documentary work documentary is the assertion that it is documentary by the public or by the context or by the, uh, the, the space that it's, it's presented in. Um, and the people that look at the work need to have the presumption or the assertion that what they're looking at has a kind of documentary uh, intent in whatever way you'd like to approach that. Um, but so what was most interesting for me is when my work became part of the context of Magnum photos, the assertions around my work changed, the context around reading my work changed. So by being there, for example, <clears throat> one of the things that I started doing was pushing the, pushing the boundaries of how far I could go with staging pictures, because I knew that the assertion around my work would be more in the, in this, inside of this is, this must be like, according to the Magnum 20th century style of uh, photojournalism. So I started to do things in a more extreme way, which was very interesting for me. So for example, I had a, I had made a project in Japan called Two Kinds of Memory and Memory Itself, which deals with the Western stereotypes that we have of Japan. 
And one of the things I did was look at Western photographers that had photographed or made work based on Japanese uh, culture. And one of those was Jeff Wall, because Jeff Wall is somebody that I'd like to reference to. Um, and he had made this picture called A Sudden Gust of Wind, which is based on a Hokusai woodblock drawing. And so when I was in Japan, I, I made a picture based on Jeff Wall's A Sudden Gust of Wind, which is in turn based on on Hokusai. So this is a very staged photograph and you have these, these salarymen in business suits losing their papers. By the way, on those papers is the partiture, the, the notes of Debussy's La Mer. And the, the record cover of Debussy's La Mer is also a Hokusai. It's the, it's the Mount Fuji wave. Uh -huh. So there's a tiny detail there. Um, yeah. It's a very elaborately staged picture. Uh, and of course, the reference to Jeff Wall is quite obvious. Um, and there was one occasion where somebody had written about my work or me being with Magnum, and they had used that picture in the article thinking it was a snapshot, thinking it was a, uh. an actual, you know, stolen, stolen moment. Uh, and that for me was very interesting because it, it showed me how powerful that these assertions and this context is. You refer to candid photography as a stolen moment. And in fact, I think often it's the reverse in terms of how we feel when information, whether it's, whether it's a photograph or a story of some other kind, is revealed to be false. We feel, I think, as consumers of the story, as listeners to the story, or viewers of the image, like something has been stolen from us. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. been a kind of theft of our trust maybe and i wonder like was there any fallout around the realization that these images were in fact staged w were there any misunderstandings that somehow um revealed this discomfort we have with um, the kind of the falsity the inherent falsity of the image as you you've experimented with yeah, well, in my case, not because it's always been very clearly part of my discourse. So it's it's never been something that I've done uh, um, sneakily or or hidden. You know, the fact that I that I sometimes stage things or that I work with the actors or um, you know that things are manipulated in the scene. It's never been something that that um, that I would do without people knowing and that's the main that's again the main difference why someone like Steve McCurry for example <clears throat> when it comes out that his many of his pictures have been photoshopped where people have literally been removed from the image and things like that it becomes a huge controversy because it was done with the intent well not I mean with the intent to deceive right? it was never part of um, the contract with the viewer uh, whereas in my case, it's always been, it's always been about this very questioning. So I, there's, there has, there hasn't been any of those issues with me. Um, but maybe if, let's say, I'm speculating a bit here, but in a, in an agency like Magnum Photos, the contract with the viewer or the assertion with the viewer may be based on very different set of rules. And if somebody comes in and, and does something that is that is not according to those uh, assertions that one makes with that kind of 
uh, work, then it also um, causes a lot of uh, questions or instability maybe in, in that contract with the viewer. So that's something that, that needs to develop over time. And I think maybe now uh, these things are changing and happening. When, when we talk about Magnum Photos, maybe not so much a traditional photo agency anymore as it is now uh, something else. Maybe it's mm. more of a brand or something. I mean, there's something incredibly antiquated about the idea of a photo agency now, given mm -hmm. the, the overwhelming ubiquity of images and digital culture um, and the fact that the most dominant, I guess, purveyor of images uh, are... A series of large social media companies and yeah this is something i wanted to ask you about i mean you work in analog and you work in a relatively traditional format and in a traditional mm -hmm. context of art history um and so what is your relationship to digital culture especially when it comes to this interest in the construction of images and the fabrication mm -hmm. of narrative where increasingly, I mean, we're all now accustomed to the idea of the deep fake um, and the, um, the falsified image. Um, and even I just, upload, I just updated um, my Creative Cloud subscription. And now in Photoshop, I've been involuntarily given the option to augment portraits by changing the direction the, the subject is looking or yeah. making them seem happier or sadder than they were. Yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah and is this the kind of world that you want to engage with? Of course, I find it very interesting. It's, uh, I think we can no longer look at photography, um, as a medium of a black box and a lens recording, whatever happens you know, outside of it, uh, it's much more today. It's more, uh, computational photography or algorithmic, uh, imagery or something. It's become much more synthetic and much more fluid in, in how it's created, how it's generated. You know, if you use your phone to make a picture, there are algorithms running to create, to create also part of that image. So it's very much <laughs> part of our world now. Uh, and I am very interested in it. I actually did a project called Trophy Camera that has an AI that's based on, you know, previous winning world press photos that always makes a, a winning world press photo. It tells you how much chance you have to win the next photo. Um, mm. But so the, these are defi this definitely a space that I'm interested in and looking into a lot. But I haven't really engaged with um, making so much work in it because a large part of how I make the work or how I see it is that for me, a lot of it is about what happens um, in a place, a kind of performative element, a kind of engagement with a person, a kind of realism still that is connected to, to this belief that the camera is, that the image itself is not digitally manipulated, that it's a record of some, of some kind of engagement or performance or uh, still a way of looking at that photograph as being something that's... Um, made in that traditional sense as a kind of window on uh, something that's happening. And if I would go into the space of, let's say, deep fakes or, or digital manipulation or like painting with pixels or whatever, it would mm. also lose a part of what makes 
my work, I think, for me interesting is that you would start to question um, if, in a, on another level, if what you see in the image actually ever happened in in reality, you know, as if if those people even exist. Like, if I would do that with margins of excess, um, who knows if the man that has hooks for hands actually has hooks for hands, you know, um, or was Darius McCollum really? you know, photographed it in, a, in prison or did I fabricate that environment? And that kind of questioning is, is unnecessary for what I am trying to do now. It would not, mm. it would not have a constructive, I think, uh, input on, on what I'm trying to do. But that's why I'm, I'm, I am looking for projects where it does fit without it compromising the work that I've done in the past. So... It's a, it's a kind of combination of all these things, of all these beliefs, these assertions, these things we take for being true, these things we can question, where are the spaces where we should be critical, what should we, you know, which battles do we want to fight? <laughs> Max, thank you so much for your time. No, it was a nice conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Scaffold is a project from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Max Pinkers, thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.